0: happening now? We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 252 for March the 16th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the technology integration and innovation specialist, aka media literacy uh, teacher for middle school and uh, sixth grade advisor at the Cassidy School just down the street. For about two and a half more months, we're on spring break, and I apologize for our late start tonight, but we'll, uh, I'm sure, get in a full 60 minutes of action, especially since the EdTech Guru of the North, guys, (laughs) look at that stack of books. He's partially obscuring it, and the photograph that he had on social media of him in the halls of power this last week... Sort of was a little deceiving, thinking maybe he'd cut his hair, but he assures me he's not. Jason Knifer. Welcome to the EdTech Situation.
1: Good evening, Dr. <laughs> Fryer. So good to see you. And indeed, it's true. Um, I'm joining you from Missoula, Montana tonight, which is the home of the University of Montana, which is the home of the Montana Digital Academy, where I am the executive director of that wonderful organization. It's true. I had an opportunity to speak with an interim legislative committee uh, this week, which was a real delight. My first opportunity to speak to that group as uh, the executive director. So it was a pretty exciting week over here in Missoula. And um, spring is kind of here, which, uh, you know, in Montana, we have several springs. I think we're in second fall spring now. So I'd assume that we are going to have at least one more significant about uh, uh, maybe multiple bouts with snow um, before uh, this this week is said. or I'm sorry, this week, Uh this season is said and done. But the highs have been in the 40s and early 50s uh, this week, which is super delightful. But I don't think we're here to talk about the weather. Wes, what is the attack situation room all about
0: well for 251 episodes we have been talking about technology news as you say shooting it through the prism of the ed- the educational lens so we are trying to talk about tech news but also think about how that would impact schools teachers students parents the classroom community or all of the folks around education and so we have compiled a list of links that we curate every week you can always find those on our website at edtech edtechsr.com slash links and we are in the habit now of categorizing them. Last week I've, I've started now to bold the ones that we talk about. Ooh, I just remembered I didn't send out the substack. So anyway, we we got our our post production crew was just slacking off the last couple of weeks, but they're getting back on the job. And so anyway, if you're if you're always you know if you're curious You can look for the semicolons between the source and the date for Jason's links and the commas for mine. And then I'm trying to, as we kind of go through bold bold them, because we always, almost always, uh, have more articles than we have time to talk about. But tonight's topics are Google, Apple, Microsoft, Ukraine War News, which I'll admit I kind of put a lot of links in for that, uh, Smart Whatever IoT, The Tech Correction, Creating, Media Literacy, and we'll wrap up with the Geek of the Week. So... Um, I'll just mention before we jump in, Doctor Nyford, your your uh, you know topic of choice. I did watch the March eighth Apple event in full. It was just a sixty minute program. You know, noth- I, I, What excites me is in a couple years that incredible Mac Studio is going to be a lot less expensive. You know, and the power and horses that it has are just incredible. But I think my main thought was sort of on the digital storytelling side. Apple, just masterful communicators. And the way they use, I don't know if infographic is the exact right word, but they use a summary slide sort of after each module in each piece, you know, really trying to drive home the key elements of new features and, and things like that. Um, it's just, it's really quite masterful. And I can see myself. Uh, as i 'm talking to students and teaching about presentation skills and just good presentation kind of best practices i to try to throw that across the room um, to to use that as an example just to watch you know a clip of it to see you know how they how they uh communicate so did you did you take a look at the video afterwards or i watched
1: or um i watched probably the first half of it uh, and it was uh, uh kind of a half watch half listening while i was in a walk through the day yeah and they do do a really good job of doing that now that said one of the things that happened the the day or two after is that uh apple gets accused pretty frequently of cherry picking uh, statistics and and comparisons it wants to make uh, and sometimes those can be rather dubious. I still think that these are all extremely compelling hardware products. Like even if they're not two and a half times and rather they're one point seven times faster than similarly priced or similarly configured hardware, I think that the M one Ultra uh, in the Mac Studio is extremely compelling um, hardware choice. I'm perfectly happy with my. Um, uh, M1, uh, Mac mini, which I purchased, uh, earlier in 2021. And in fact, um, you know, since I'm not working at home much anymore, it really doesn't matter. Like I do spend, in fact, the most correct thing I do every week probably on this machine is this podcast. So it's not something that, um, I'd be interested in upgrading, but, I would say the $2,000 price for the, the, the lower-spec uh, Mac Studio, I think, is a wonderfully compelling uh, a piece, especially if you're someone that understands that, um, you know, that's probably going to be six, seven, eight years' worth of, of, of hardware, even for a power user um, uh, uh, over the coming uh, years.
0: All right. Well, we did have the show last week on Apple, so we don't need to definitely do, do quite as much this time. Where would you like to start with tonight's links?
1: Well, um, let me pick up on a couple of quick Microsoft stories uh, uh, that we didn't get to previously uh, because they're interesting. Uh, One of them is we've talked a couple of times before about the challenge of Windows 11 and the fact that it only supports relatively recent hardware, which is actually kind of a shift for Microsoft because uh, one of the, the compelling things about Windows 10, when it was released in 2015, was that it was a better experience on older hardware than Windows 7, which a lot of people uh, were both surprised by and delighted by, and I would imagine was a huge uh, advantage to schools. But Windows 11 has a, a, a pretty stringent uh, hardware requirements. However, you can install Windows 11, even on an unsupported machine. It just doesn't get the promise of updates. Um, and I, my understanding is that uh, sometimes it can be a little wonky for trying to manage them in the enterprise but I'm just noting from The Verge on February 22nd that uh, Microsoft is actually now wanting to put a desktop watermark or a note on your desktop when it's on unsupported hardware. And I guess I, I it, it feels to me like Microsoft made a decision to build Windows 11 off of needing uh, a, a certain minimum hardware, but also a, some security uh, 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 hardware in the uh, that's attached to the BIOS. You know, if you're going to talk about that decision being a wonderful, uh, decision, then I think you just need to go for it and stop allowing people to install it on, 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 or install it on unsupported hardware and not go through the rigmarole of, of not doing updates or letting you know it's on unsupported hardware. If that, if that's the right decision, then I think you gotta stick by it. But that does kind of feel like a classic Microsoft versus like a classic Apple. Apple just doesn't apologize for things. It tends to, um, Uh, Well, it, it, it has a general history of supporting hardware a little longer than other manufacturers do. But at the same time, um, you know, they unapologetically do things like, you know, get rid of all the ports on a laptop or decide that the floppy drive is not, is not worth your time or decide that the optical drive is not worth your time. And the many decisions they've made along the way to kind of evolve computing as, as part of their process. And I think that it's probably not the best decision to allow people to play with Windows 11, even though the hardware is unsupported. So um, that's a really quick one. And then this one, I'm 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 more curious to 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 uh, hear from you, Doctor Fryer, on this. But there's appears to be a new video editing app on Windows 11 called Clip. Champ and um the verge talked about this on on March 9th, and uh there is uh it's it's kind of being heralded as an alternative to windows movie maker which was uh it's it's been not available for some time but it's a um a timeline based uh, app, uh, not unlike uh, if you use, um, uh, uh, Camtasia Studio or the old Windows Movie Maker was like this or Adobe Premiere is like this as well. Um, it allows for multi-track audio support and generally user, uh, uh, friendly editing, uh, uh, tricks. And I think this is a really good call on Microsoft's part that I think that, that, you know, it may not be for the super advanced creators, but especially in a school environment, having an integrated video editor in the windows, I think would encourage a lot of flexibility, whether you're in a one-to-one environment or you utilize classroom sets or labs. So your thoughts, sir.
0: Oh, absolutely. Hey, video is the pencil of the 21st century, baby. So we all need to be much more, um, Practiced and, and literate in the creation of of video and different kinds of media, and I think that is a really good move. I think that that Google, you know, with the the Google Suite, the Google Workspace apps, it, it's a glaring omission. You know, we're, we're, we use the Adobe, what called what was Adobe Spark, is now called the Adobe. CC Express, Creative Cloud Express, uh, set of tools, <clears throat> which allow for some, uh, video creation. But I, I, I totally, totally agree. It's been a glaring omission for them not to have Movie Maker. You know, back in the day, this would have put us back to like 2006-ish. When we came to Oklahoma, that was the heyday of, uh photo story three, which I think I probably <laughs> learned about from David Jakes. You know, that was a windows XP application, but it was a, a great little program uh, for creating narrated slideshows. And I've worked with teachers and students and helped hundreds of, you know, videos we made with that, with that platform. And then it just went away, you know, there just, there wasn't something else to take its place. So, um, I think it's great. And I hope that, um, Media creation tools like that will, you know, continue to be normalized and become more powerful. And I'd love to see something like that. I know WeVideo is something our our sixth grade uh, team has licensed for all of our kids with Chromebooks. We don't do that for everybody, but I think everybody needs to have uh, a video tool. Again, Adobe uh, CC Express is free, but it's quite—it's not quite that same level of power like an iMovie or what it looks like Clipchamp can do. Um, I tend to make most of my videos now on my phone, you know, and that is something that a lot of of students uh, might have access to. But yay, Microsoft. And I hope that we'll see uh, if if anybody's used that or is using that with students, uh, giving that a try. If you're in a one to one environment with, you know, any kind of Microsoft laptop surface uh, and laptops, that would be a great thing to be testing and, and using if you're not already you know, doing something with WeVideo or have another platform out there.
1: Yep, awesome. Okay, where'd you like to go to next, sir? All right, well, I'm going to do
0: the breaking news, although I don't think I did quite as good as you. <laughs> uh, so let's go to Ukraine War News, and this is coming to us hot off the press. Uh, shout out to Lisa Durf, uh, Durf on Twitter. And uh, this is a Verge article from today, March the 16th. Uh, Facebook removes fake. Of Ukrainian President Zelensky. In the fake video, Zelensky surrenders to the Russian invasion. And in her tweet, Lisa noted that we were warning and talking about deep fakes in 2019, a couple years ago. And so this is exactly the kind of scenario that deep fakes are dangerous for. That if you have if someone has enough video that you have access to via any source, then the AI can be trained to basically make that person not only look like they're saying it, but sound like they're saying whatever you want them to say. And so in this case, um, the the creators of this, which are undoubtedly Russian, uh, Russian sympathizers, um, were uh, having Zelensky Uh, ask Ukrainians to lay down their arms. Now it does note that the videos in the video, his head is comically larger than in real life and it's more pixelated. So it doesn't. And then the, the fake voice is deeper. So we've seen some others like what, there's a pretty famous one that was recent about with Tom Cruise. Anyway, they probably didn't have as many, as much time or maybe as many resources to be able to put it together. But still ladies and gentlemen, You know, we used to talk about, oh, Photoshop in the, you know, checkout aisle of the grocery store. All of those people are airbrushed. I mean, that's still true. But this kind of thing where a political figure, especially in an international war, you know, is being portrayed as saying something extremely disruptive. It points to the idea that we're in um a huge information war and and some people will say there's been information wars before all kinds of propaganda have, you know, surrounded wars forever, but the degree to which we're in an information war today, um, you know, it, it's just, it, it's more of an information war than ever before, as well as a kinetic shooting war. Any thoughts on that, Dr.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was just looking at the video and it, it's pretty obviously a fake, but part of the problem though, is that on a slow connection on a smaller screen, um, you know, maybe a duplication even passed around. Um, you know, it, it, it that's the problem that th- these technologies keep getting better. Um, uh, you mentioned that his head is, is comically large, which I would also concur looking at the, the video in the background here. But I mean, that's that, you know, we don't need any more complications to our reach rich media landscape here in 2022 because there's already, you know, an unbelievably, um, uh, uh un, hindered ability to publish to a worldwide audience in just seconds from, from nearly anywhere via the internet. But it just goes to show you that, you know, especially something, you know, there, there should be lots of reasons why this video should give you pause, um, in light of, um, uh, uh, what we know now about, uh, the, the, uh, Availability of, of fake news and, and other kind of constructed information. But the fact that this piece of information goes against every other piece of at least the Western media's perception of situation should give you pause. And to be honest, if you're looking at this video and saying, oh, I know this whole thing, the other thing was a hoax the whole time. Maybe you should be questioning your sources too. And it just goes back to that, you know, the uh, inter- or internet search engines are are not search exercises. They are critical thinking exercises. And if we're not forcing our students to think about even mainstream legitimate sources, right, if it's something that doesn't feel right or feels contrarian, then go find other mainstream sources to either con- confirm or deny the information that you're receiving.
0: Amen. Yeah. Uh, the S of SIFT is to stop. Stop, investigate the source. Um, find uh, trusted coverage and trace claims to their original. Um, I think there's a good link here to the the tech correction as well, which I know you've got some articles tonight for tech correction because Meta, which used to be called Facebook, you know, made this decision to take this content down, pointing to the fact that these platforms, even though we have Section, gosh, I haven't said it in a while, what's the what's the section that they something ninety, my brain, um, two thirty. Section 230, thank you so much. I was going to try to Google it. Section 230 allows for, you know, platforms um, in the United States to not have to have all objectionable, offensive content off. They just have to be trying to kind of keep it clean. But, you know, in, in the past, they've said, well, we're not publishers, you know, we're just platforms. But, you know, this kind of content moderation, this kind of censorship is essential but the question is, where does that where is that line drawn? Yeah. And I think this is an excellent article to share with students, to share with colleagues, to talk about media literacy and to talk about why we need to be savvy to this kind of thing. And what we don't want is and this is just my opinion, you know, to be launched into to nihilism and a complete abandonment of all trust for for journalism and media sources. Instead, we need to say, look, we've got to be savvy. We have to be critical thinkers. We need to be checking things out, especially before we reshare them. And we've all got responsibilities here. And we also have to think about regulation and think about, you know, the degree to which companies uh, should and can self-regulate. And then the degree to which we need government to have some rules to, you know, tell platforms that what what they what they can and can't do. So I'm glad that Facebook has taken this step. Undoubtedly, we're going to see more of this in the future.
1: Yep, absolutely so.
0: All right. Uh, let me pick up, on. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of Ukraine. Yeah, we're not going on. <laughs> yeah, not get going on. But let me, uh, let me do the next one on TikTok. I saw you got a TikTok article also under Tech Correction. Um, this one's a couple weeks old. This was also from The Verge, March 6th. TikTok temporarily bans new video creation in Russia. So <clears throat> we've seen and I think we talked about on the show last week how a number of journalism organizations have left Russia because it's become a crime basically to be an independent um, you know news uh, voice in in Russia. Uh, saying things like "it's a war," "it's an invasion," um, and so some really established uh, news agencies have have taken their folks out. There's still people who are there. I think I saw today a headline about a, a Fox Journal Fox News journalist who had disappeared and was a what, you know feared dead. Um, but but anyway, this was an article talking about how TikTok, which again is Chinese owned, so that you know the, it, it's a very complicated fractured media landscape with a lot of pollution and a lot of different voices. And it's certainly, it's more difficult. I think uh, Dr. Knifer than it was when you and I were you know, in school or even in college and you just, it, the landscape is challenging more so than ever, but um, in part, perhaps to respond to some of those kinds of issues or just the fact that it's going to be um, problematic with, with content. Anyway, TikTok decided uh, in response to this "quote-unquote" fake news law, uh, to suspend new video uploads and live streams on its app in Russia. Now, what's interesting is, you know, the U. I don't know. I mean, there's other places where these things can um, can be created in terms of, uh, you know, sourcing, you know, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, as some people will call it. Um, I read another art- article or heard somebody talking about how, you know, the ruble, the Russian currency crashing has really hurt their ability to pay for disinformation and trolls. And we've had there's been a bit, of I would say, a bit of mystique around, you know, 2016 election. Ooh, Russia, they've got this vast capability. Well, they've all it hasn't all been just home homegrown local. I mean, they're they're paying for it, too. So anyway, um I thought this was probably a very predictable, uh, reaction. Um, but in terms of TikTok deciding not to allow those kinds of uploads, but it certainly begs a lot of questions about how different, you know, companies are going to have to be with their rules and their guidelines for what you can do here in this country or what you can't do, um, the days of, hey, anywhere you want on the planet you can, you know, upload. I guess unless you have an Elon Musk Starlink connection, right? Because maybe you're gonna be able to do whatever you want on Starlink. That's we mentioned that last week that they've gotten some Starlink, you know, connections down into Ukraine. But as far as Russia, it really is a big impact. Um, probably more people using VPNs and there's some articles about ways that different people are trying to get more information to, to Russia, but any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, um well I guess I'd start with the thing I find most interesting about this is that I do see some stuff kind of trickling into my TikTok uh with both my four year page and the followers page that is related to sorry about that. Um related to um um related to, to the Ukrainian war, but I don't I you know I'm sure it has to happen, but the thing about the TikTok logarithm that um, and there are some people that have concerns in the other direction about this is that it's just not something that's making it into my feed. And I spend a fair amount of time on TikTok. Now I enjoy it as a platform and, you know, and it's barbecue TikTok and it's nerd TikTok and it's um, teacher TikTok, which I also find to be kind of amusing too. But, um, you know, the, the thing that, that was interesting about this is that that just tells you that there is a shocking amount of content on TikTok. And, um, you know, uh, it, it sounds like that, that one of the things they were doing was attempting to be proactive before they ran afoul of, of, of the new law. But, um, because it seems like, uh, the Putin, uh, uh, regime is being pretty hardball or, or is playing hardball with this with, with even tech companies in Russia. But the, the thing that just, it strikes me is that, you know, that means that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of content likely that is, uh, uh, happening there. Um, I do follow a couple of Ukrainian based creators, uh, that's been very, uh, uh, informative, but at the same time, um, uh, uh, it is interesting that it's, it's, it's of concern enough to, you know, change the, um, or to, to ban, uh, Russians from jumping in on it. Yep.
0: We could go a little more with some of the, those articles or we can certainly jump to something else. Cause that, yeah, this is, this is the kind of thing that more. has a couple more. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Any, anyone you want to pick up or have me uh, talk about next? Oh, why don't you got... go ahead? Okay. So we got like... Okay. Well, let's do a positive one. All right. So this is from the Times of Israel on March 4th. Harvard Internet Wiz 19 creates website or actually there are several, a couple of them, I think, connecting Ukrainian refugees with hosts. So, um, uh, this is, well, a, a student, Avi Schiffman, uh, who had who had also created a heavily used COVID tracking site. And so he used uh, his coding skills basically to enable refugees fleeing the war in the Ukraine to locate places that they can stay. And so <clears throat> that could be uh, resort um, hotels that, that have space or, you know, other um, places where people have have uh, volunteered to be able to. Uh, Let people uh, stay for a period of time. Uh, Hosts will take them in. And the website is called ukrainetakeshelter.com. Launched on March the 3rd. Uh, He says in the article, there had to be something very streamlined and intuitive to use. Refugees are very stressed, confused, and lost. I think I read on here it was in like 18 languages or something like that. Um, And so anyway, that's just a, that's an awesome example of you know, technology being utilized to try and meet a need, a student, in this case, a college student uh, who has already developed, you know, other websites and things that, that were taking data and, you know, being able to present things. But then, you know, applying those skills in a, in a new area. So I thought that was pretty awesome and a good example of something to probably share um, as an inspiring bit of news in the midst of a lot of very negative news with the, the Ukraine war.
1: I do want to pick up on one other Ukraine article because I, I know the background on this. Uh, the one you posted was from The Washington Post on March 11th. But the White House uh, last week briefed TikTokers on the war in Ukraine. And um, uh, what's interesting about that is that it's certainly not my primary news source. Um, I am still very much an NPR. New York Times person is where I get the vast majority of my national, international news. But um, I do. Uh, listen to a fair bit of news on TikTok. News TikTok is something that uh, I think I kind of naturally stumbled into, and I kind of like some of the creators. Uh, I would suggest, uh, for example, Under Desk News is a creator that I follow on TikTok, and. Um, uh, uh, really enjoyed that particular channel um, and is a pretty good take on things. And that particular journalist is now working for the LA Times as well. But the um, what I think is interesting about this, is I think it's very savvy on the Biden administration part. I thought it was very savvy on the Trump administration's part when they were engaging um, uh, uh, more influencer style public relations firms uh, in, in uh, the, the past several um, or I'm sorry, in the last months of, of the Trump administration, but I think it's a very smart move on, um, the Biden administration's part. And I do think that, um, a lot of people are probably getting their news, maybe not primarily. well, no, probably primarily from platforms like TikTok. So I thought it was a clever move on the part of Biden media team.
0: And to bring that back to the classroom, you know, we need to be not only utilizing video uh as teachers to help present information and help students learn. <clears throat> but we need to be helping students learn how to uh utilize video, how to how to analyze it, uh, how to vet it, and also how to create it. Um video, this would be a good thing to try to find a, a study on, but in terms of of the way that the majority of people are getting the, the information in a specific case, like about Ukraine, I'm sure there's large numbers of folks that are primarily getting their information from TikTok and YouTube. And so it's just, it's one of those things that I really don't think our educational system writ large has adjusted to. And whether you're teaching a, a computer or a technology course or not, uh, this is just part of literacy today. Um, there's different sides to it. The deep fake stuff we were talking about you know, earlier is one side of it. But yeah, I thought this was fascinating. And it's, I think our, our administration is, is being savvy here. They're being tech savvy um, because they're recognizing that it's not enough to just put out a press press release and, you know, try to be traditional, you know, traditional means of, of getting the word out are still important, but, but these influencers and, and the ways in which platforms like TikTok are being utilized is, is huge. Um, I want to go ahead and do a shout out. There's like, we're not going to get to all these. There's like 10 more articles, but there, <laughs> there is an awesome, awesome article. This is where like Jason and I are trying to be the filter for each other. And for you, um, <laughs> Wired published, uh, in Ars Technica on March 12th. Russia's Disinformation Machinery Breaks Down in the Wake of the Ukraine Invasion. And this is actually where I found my Geek of the Week that I'll share a little bit later. The author of this is Tom Southern. And this is one of the articles I read where he talks about, like, the Russian influence on not only the 2016 U.S. election, but on the Brexit vote in the U.K., um, the ways in which Russia has really, you know, invested in the digital realm in its disinformation war but, um, they're, they've had some big missteps. And so, <clears throat> uh, I'll read the, the part of this paragraph. Critically, the Kremlin seemed to understand that while our online worlds are key parts of us, we behave differently there because it taps into our magical thinking. It is real and unreal at the same time. We troll each other, scream at each other, produce millions of hours of ever <laughs> weirder content, all because of the world is slightly unreal. And it, it basically, it, it talks about how it, um, almo- the screens are, almost become like spirituality. There's wild leaps of faith. And of course this is where conspiracy theory comes in. And so anyway, there's a whole kind of side of the human psyche that is tapped into with some of this content, which some people are, you know, going to for entertainment um, for all kinds of different reasons. And so anyway, I thought this was a, a fascinating um, article uh, talking about the, the disinformation rules that have really been violated. Um, and so Putin, it's, he, he's arguing that Putin has, has very severely underestimated the extent to which we in the West have got, have become wiser to media manipulation. We've developed new capabilities. Uh, Zelensky has a lot of social media savvy. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, Ronald Reagan. What was his background before he's president? Oh, he was a Hollywood actor. You know, he was ideally situated skill-wise to present very compelling, you know, presentations from the White House to the American people. Um, he was just a great, great communicator. And in the same way, Zelensky trained as an actor, um, he's been brilliant in Many of the the ways that he has been communicating and and utilizing video and social media. And so anyway, basically, the the article is saying that Russia has has not recognized the way that the world has moved. Um, And I think this is a positive from the standpoint of, you know, media literacy education writ large, not just in classrooms, but, you know, via journalism, via uh, the Internet. (laughs) Uh, it has an impact on c- people's critical thinking and on um, the potential susceptibility that we have uh, to some of this. But um, there's a lot of other layers here, and mainstream media still makes a big difference. And a lot of the news that that many Russians are getting through their their mainstream media channels, you know, certainly does not provide any kind of balanced perspective on what is happening. And there's some more articles um, that we want time to get to. But if you want to subscribe to our Substack at EdTechSR. .substack.com, um, we'll email those out to you. Or you can always check them out with the Google Doc too. But any thoughts there?
1: Um, no, other than to say that I, we just can't treat 2022 like the media landscape is the same, right? And I just, I feel like over and over again, we we keep kind of hoping and, that we're going to go back to normal at some point. But the cat's out of the bag on, on these technologies, right? And even though I feel um, somewhat, uh, um, somewhat encouraged by the fact that, you know, people are starting to question social media. People are starting to deplatform themselves, um, in some cases, if social media, uh, isn't, um, uh, good for their mental health. But the bottom line, um, is that a, it's encouraging to hear that uh, that some of the tricksterness of the last four or five years in international uh, uh, media uh, trickery is 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 kind of scaling itself back. The bottom line is is that we just still need to be extremely careful and um, you know don't believe everything you read on the internet. I'm gonna do one more fast one, and this is from BBC, BBC. Um, and this was on I think the 12th.
0: Uh, this is a positive spam article, right? Okay, have we ever talked positively about spam on the EdTech Situation Room? I'm not sure we have. Um, so there is a website that's been set up uh, to, to reach millions of Russians by a Norwegian computer expert who wanted to do something. Um, and so he has set this up that you can send email to up to 150 Russian email addresses at a time in the hope that Russian folks can hear, quote unquote, the truth that their government is hiding. And so one of the things that we probably all know about about spam and its proliferation online is that there are these blacklists that exist and and certain email addresses and even domains and things like that get blacklisted. And so you get marked as spam. What this is doing is letting individual people uh, anywhere on the planet who have an email account, a real one, right? That's not created for spam to be able to use this and then be the, the, the sending, you know, source uh, for these kinds of messages. And so there's some other things that are going on on TikTok and on other kinds of social, actually on dating sites. There's another article about this too, where people are just, you know, interacting. There was somebody who like changed his location to Russia to say, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm here in Russia, and he's been getting into conversations about the Ukraine. But I thought that was pretty interesting. And usually, again, when we hear about spam, we just think, oh, it's terrible. And so there is this question of, is this an illegitimate use of technology because this is spam? But, you know, the the Norwegian developer who created this is saying, my goal is to try and help educate Russians who can't hear the truth in their mainstream media. And I thought that was Pretty fascinating. So would you like to save us from Ukraine news, Dr. Neifer, with some other technology
1: topics? I'm going to do so. Let's cover actually a wide variety of interesting pieces of Google news. Um, The first one uh, is that there is uh, some new Google Classroom features. Uh, Chrome Unbox uh, featured today uh, uh, that... Um, And I see that John Sowash is now uh, uh, writing for Chrome Unboxed, which is great news. Um, uh, There are new Google Classroom features uh, uh, available, and one of the most interesting ones is that there is now – a notion of something that's called practice sets and I'm not entirely sure I read both the blog post and the article and I'm not entirely sure if I 100% understand how this works but it's it's mostly um uh, aimed at uh mathematics practice sets which is whenever you have a math a problem that you're inking out the answer to my understanding is that not only does google using ai um, uh, let you know if you're on the right track or not uh, to answer the question correctly it can actually provide additional guidance and resources to you. If you're in the middle of the problem and you're, 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 you're not doing it correctly, which I think is a um, extraordinary thing. And I'm not sure why um, I, I'm so popular tonight, but um, you know, it's something that's really, I think, interesting um, uh, in the direction they're going into. It's nice to see a uh, Google classroom continue to, um, try to figure out uh, uh, more ways to enhance their LMS. And that article points
0: out there's some really powerful Google magic. That's what they say in the article, similar to um, what we've seen with Google Lens, uh, pulling, you know, questions and problems from images and PDF files um, and, and basically taking static content that would be, you know, usually just like, you know, sent to students and used as is, but making that more interactive um, I think that is fascinating. And I think that I mean, what this reminded me of was a little bit of um, just the different like when I was t- teaching Spanish last year for the pandemic, um, we used a variety uh, Quizlet. Um, um, there were some other tools that we were using, you know, as far as vocabulary and things like that. Um, but being able to, um, as he says, in the article uh, help solve some some homework frustration or, you know, contribute to. Um, positive experiences for students, being able to, to leverage some tools that are going to help them better better review and, and have better feedback. Um, I think that is fantastic. So good find there on that article.
1: Um, another interesting article. Uh, this one I'm, 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 I'm unusually excited about, but this one is from Today's Verge. And there's a new Google Docs update available called, um, uh, what's well, it just one of the features under their Smart Canvas initiative. And we've talked a little bit about how Google's been evolving in in, or Google Docs has been evolving quite a bit over the last year, and they did change the technology that was showing a Google Doc on a screen, and they've also started adding the so-called chips into other locations, so it's easy to pull other people in for collaboration. But this one's super interesting. Um, basically, all you need to do, um, uh, uh, uh to start this feature is to use a, um, uh, uh. A, uh, um, an at symbol and type a name in there and then it will bring up a form to where you can start composing an email in docs as opposed to um, uh, uh, elsewhere. And that's super cool because I actually do a lot of work uh, in emails from docs um, and have to copy and paste them back in. And my understanding is that you can then send the email by clicking on the Google um, uh, or I'm sorry, the Gmail icon, it then pops up that email composed in a Gmail window and allows you to send it. And I just think that's super cool for productivity purposes.
0: Man, that is something I've never even thought of before. So bringing together a couple different products and yeah, possibly changing, mm-hmm. changing workflows
1: and that looks cool. Let's see, a couple other, um, a Google based article. And I think you posted this one. I kind of want to hear more about it. Google has shut down YouTube Vanced a popular ad blocking Android app. What details do you have for us there?
0: So one of, uh, are you still a YouTube red subscriber? Yes, I am. I'm tempted to do that. One of the things I, I dislike the most on my Apple TV is the fact that I, I can't block ads on, on YouTube. Um, so some developers basically stole the source code for the YouTube Android app and they remixed it illegally. Uh, so they decompiled it this um was uh i think put out in twenty seventeen um, and they uh, stripped out the ads and so this is obviously not something that that Google and YouTube want um they they want you to be able to see the ads unless you 're gonna pay for you know youtube red and and be able to monetize in that way and so this is uh, an example of um you know copyright and, and what, what you can legitimately do with other, with other code. Um, but I thought that was, that was interesting. And so that app has actually been pulled from the store and it's now dead. So
1: well, and I'd also say, just just for the record too, that um YouTube's a different experience with ads turned off, right? I understand why people were trying to work around that. I pay nine ninety nine ninety nine nine ninety-nine for YouTube whatever, and it keeps changing because I keep adding more services. It's probably getting me way, 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 way more money. Um or I'm sorry, it's costing me way less money than if I had bought some of these services individually, but I have the advanced new YouTube music piece. Um, um uh um uh and and it it's worth it to me because uh across all my platforms i see zero ads at least pop-up ads, right? There's still ads sometimes in the context of the videos, but I just cannot believe uh, uh, how different the the environment is. And I'm not entirely sure I totally agree with YouTube's notion to push ads more aggressively onto the platform. But at the same time, the web is not free, right? We should stop pretending it's free. And targeted advertising is what makes a lot of the web go round. But if you're a big YouTube user, and I am, I love YouTube, but YouTube is is a big part of my media consumption diet, I get a lot of wonderful news and information resources from YouTube, but if that's you, I think it's worth the $10 a month to pay to get rid of the ads.
0: That is a good endorsement. And it's one of those things that I'm definitely going to be thinking about and considering. Um, I'm going to drop the link into the chat for the UBlock origin Chrome extension, which is one of the ones that I always recommend to students and teachers. Um, It will basically on your laptop, whatever, whether you're running a Chromebook or any other platform and you're running Chrome, it'll block, basically all the ads and, and in YouTube, it does as well. So um, yes, I, I do agree. We do need to be sensitive to the fact that the, the web um, is largely funded today. These free products to, to a large, to a big degree uh, by advertising. And and we've talked before on the show and just a few episodes ago, I'm trying to remember the name of the initiative, but Google was trying to basically uh, have a new standard for, Doing third party cookie tracking. And anyway, it ended up getting killed because I think it was going to give Google too much power. But part of what some people had warned is, oh, my gosh, that might, you know, kill ad blockers. So there is a a bit of cat and mouse going on here and probably will continue to be uh, with regard to ads. But Um, it's not illegal to run an ad blocker. All right. So we're not doing anything illegal. I've never heard, heard that as, as an allegation. Uh, it's not like you're hacking code, you know, as in the case of this YouTube advanced, uh, program was, but, uh, it is certainly something that, you know, Google and YouTube have some interest in, um, at some point, probably trying to defeat. Uh, but in the educational context, where there is not targeted advertising and tracking of students, you know, under the age of 13, especially, uh, but I think it's all users of what used to be called Google Apps for Education, now Google Workspace for Education, whatever, um, you know, it is a little bit different. So anyway. I do appreciate that endorsement of YouTube Red though, and I will. In addition to continuing to think, do I want to buy some AirTags? Jason Neifer uses them and loves them. Yeah, absolutely about, love them. Uh,
1: the YouTube, you know, premium is
0: it? It's called YouTube Premium now, YouTube probably, Premium?
1: Probably, yeah, yeah. They keep changing the name, but right. Uh, hey, I want to hit one more Chrome article. This one is from Nine to Five Google um, yesterday, and um, they're reporting that Chrome for Mac has achieved its highest speedometer score today, beating Safari. And they have more details there, but um, Chrome is kind of infamously a dog on, on on Macs and tends to be both a memory hog and slower than other browser options. And of course, the fastest browser on Mac has always been Safari because it's you know made by the people that make the hardware and the op- operating system. So it's necessarily going to have an advantage, but it's been working a lot lately. At, uh, Chrome Central, uh, the Chrome development team at Google has been, been working on trying to make the browser a little more, um, uh, uh svelte and speedy across all platforms, but, um, they released a new version it's, it's version 99 which is rolled out across um all the different architectures and it is faster um uh, uh i believe across um all platforms but it's now faster by benchmarks than safari on the mac which is pretty impressive so i just did run a benchmark uh when i saw this article and it, it had a I, I still use the old octane benchmark from google even though it's been uh, depreciated and is no longer considered uh 100 percent reliable but i achieved a ridiculous high, ridiculously high score it's like eighty thousand um on the benchmark and speedometer uh uh browser uh has the speedometer uh uh um benchmark and they achieved a, a very 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 high rating and i want to say it was like a hundred and um oh no uh even more ridiculous it achieved 300 on the speedometer.org test which is uh pretty impressive
0: we are coming up to the top of the hour. However, we started late. So we do have about 15 minutes left in our 60 minute show. Um, I'll pick up one more Google article that I actually dropped in. Um, I think last week, Jason, you had uh, put in an article about, uh, some, some developers at Google talking about, you know, their desire to really become dominant, uh, on, on the tablet side of things. And so this one uh, caught my attention. This was nine to five Google on March 14th. Uh, this is Abner Lee's article who, I prefer the phone version, the underwhelming underwhelming state of Google's first party tablet apps on Android. Now, um, the Gmail app is an exception to this, but he goes through uh, Google Keep, Voice Home, um, you know, and and just talking about, I guess, basically an underwhelming experience. But uh, Gmail, Google Maps, Google Photos, YouTube Music, uh, those are all considered to be uh, good uh, Google Calendar is the only one that fits in his category of great, um, but hey, I would say this is iteration right um, in terms of numbers of users um, I, I don't know i'm I'm not sure what the market share looks like for people who are using Android tablets at this point, but certainly smaller I think than the iPad you know market, and then even just like Chromebook and things like that. So I do think it's good to see Google um, continuing to try and and move forward in that space. Um, I still have an old Android tablet that's probably about seven years old and I probably, I don't know if I should just throw it away now. I probably can't even get any money for it, but um, there are a lot of apps that had similar functionality uh, at the time that I was using it. But um, you know, we've just got, we we certainly I think see a lot more creativity and, and work in the iOS space, uh, the iPad space, iPad OS space than we do for, for Google. But, that one caught my attention on the Google front. So any more Google articles or would you like to head to a different topic tonight in our remaining time?
1: Uh, let's do, should we do a couple of, well, let me do the smart uh, home article. Cause this has been on our list for a couple of weeks. Um, great article from TechCrunch on February 18th. It talks about what I think is, is, is absolutely my experience. Um, you know, we are in an era of smart homes and uh, I haven't looked lately, but the last time I checked, I had 35, maybe 38 Devices on my Wi-Fi network. And to be clear, we don't have any tech savvy teens in our house. It's just me and my wife. Um, I guess you could count my dog because, um, I've occasionally put a tracker on, on him, uh, for fun. But, um, you know, we have a lot of smart uh, home devices. Um, we, uh, have been, we've collapsed down to, we're just using, um, um, Madam A speakers. The, uh, Echo speakers from Amazon is, is our net based speakers. And, uh, at one point we had a couple of Google devices, but are no longer using those because we've collapsed down to just, uh, uh, Madam A and, and her tools. Um, and we have several smart plugs and a couple smart lights and, um, a couple other, uh, home devices, and we also have one net-based camera, which I use mostly to keep an eye on my cat when we're, um, away for a day or two, um, uh, to make sure she's still breathing, but the thing that, that I wanted to note, um, a very old cat, 18 and a half years old, but the, um, the thing I want to know is that to make that happen, I have four or five apps on my phone in four or five different architectures. We have none of the older school IOT devices, like any of them require Z wave or those type of protocols where you have to have a separate thing that then plugs into your network. So you can get access to those particular devices. We also don't have any smart locks or anything. We're tend tend to be a little old fashioned in the lock world, but there is a dizzying array of platforms and devices, and uh, the OSs are getting a little better about allowing you to plug those things into mobile operating systems. Uh, The newest version of Android, for example, if you have a compatible device. There's a, a screen you can bring up that shows all your smart devices and controls for that. I think there's something somewhere um and i think it's via maybe the widgets or the stacks that are available you can do a similar thing in in uh, ios but the bottom line is is that unless you're a hobbyist that wants to manage a bunch of devices the simple smart home is elusive and i mentioned that because we've talked about smart home a lot um, uh, uh, Wes and I both have warned few, quite a few times that one of the biggest risks to having a smart home is that if you're buying cheap devices that are on platforms that no longer exist or aren't getting updated, those, uh, uh, provide pretty, uh, 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 I, I guess meaningful opportunities for hackers to get inside your home network. Um, I have, uh, worked to segregate all my IOT devices to its own wireless network because I have Wi-Fi, um, uh, um, um I had or, uh, da, 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 da. Um, I have a wi fi router that allows for multiple um uh, network names and so I've, I have a separate network that segregate out for iot devices. I just want to note if you 're finding all this overwhelming or not accessible to you as an end user, you are absolutely not alone and to be honest, because of how fragmented our world is when we have two, three, four, five different major sets of, 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 of platforms that you can uh, 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 utilize IoT devices on, this may not get resolved.
0: Yeah, 35 devices on the Fryer Network tonight, uh, according to Google Home. Um, I use basically the Google Home app, um, the Smart Life app, which allows me to connect some of these less costly uh, smart plugs and, and light switches that I've gotten off Amazon. Um, and then I use if this, then that to set up recipes, I'm going to actually write a blog post. Maybe I'll spring break. So I've been doing some, some writing called, um, my quail spells, because one of the things that's interesting, like about Spotify, you know, when you want to have a playlist is if there's another name that someone has for that podcast or whatever, it needs to be unique. We live in a, our neighborhoods called Quail Creek. And I just learned that there's not that many things called quail. So anyway, I've named all these playlists, quail, piano, quail, uh, you know, whatever, this, diff- uh, tunes, different things. So, um, my recommendation on that, cause I don't totally agree and, and echo that, that is complicated. Number one, okay. Go to your local Best Buy because, you know, I don't do this that often, but I was just roaming around looking for things. It's kind of dangerous. I did call my wife before I, you know, made a purchase th- this last time, but there's all sorts of interesting things in there, especially smart home area, smart speakers, you know, just seeing what's available. Um, and they've got a whole segment in, in, in at least our local store, and this may not be in everyone, uh, but it is the high end, you know, a- AV. So, you know, setting up your home theater, setting up Uh, you know, audio and speakers and wireless, but it's to do all of that smart home stuff. So of course that's for a premium price. Um, But my recommendation, if you're not going to go that route, which I haven't gone that route, um, is to really think about your platform. I love Apple. I love my iPhone and my iPad and my MacBook and all my Apple stuff. But... Um, I'm just not going to pay that premium price to have a, a an expensive Apple speaker in so many different rooms. And so we've just gone with Google. Um, I really haven't purchased any of the Amazon devices. And I and I, I don't know, it, I'm, I'm sure it is a, a bit more challenging the more hybrid your network is in terms of, of standards and things like that. So, you know, if you love Amazon, and you, you want to go with all those Echo devices and that may be the way to go. Um, I think it's probably more sensible to kind of think about I'm going to be an Amazon house or I'm going to be uh, a a Google house at this point. Or if you want to go Apple, you know, go for it. I mean, they're definitely making great products and they have privacy in mind, Um, but it is a big problem. Um, However, it's wonderful. I love it. It's weird. What did I do the other day? Oh, there was a playlist. I had to make a new playlist because I couldn't remember the name of this. So it is like it's very Harry Potter ish in terms of like when you have these smart speakers in different rooms and you can say these phrases because I've created routines to like turn on four different plugs in my living room area, you know, including the TV or turn them off at night and things like that. And we do say Harry Potter things like Lumos is one of our commands that lights it up. And I say that every day when I walk in the living room. It's quite peaky. but you have to figure stuff out. And as we contemplate moving to North Carolina here in a few months, you know, I'm going to be actually switching off, you know, circuit breakers and, you know, unwiring um, light switches that are, you know, been hardwired, you know, into our house. Um, so not for the faint of heart, necessarily, not something that requires an electrical engineering degree, um, but there can be a lot of, of not only know hardware electricity technology sorts of stuff you got to navigate but then you got to make the apps work and then if you have a power surge or something, like, you know, i had that the other day i was like how do i reset this so we have not had a mission critical thing go down but if you've watched mr robot you know and i'm that's probably you know it rated ma <laughs> um there's some interesting scenes there about homes being hacked so hopefully we're not going to read about the knife or the fryer home, you know, becoming one of the case studies
1: for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, ain't that yeah. the truth?
0: Keep keeping your well, stuff updated and using good passwords on your Wi Fi. Yeah. All, always
1: yeah. good. Yep, that's me too. And I will tell you, I feel a little safer having segregated IoT off devices off my main network. So it comes with mm-hmm. some other challenges, but otherwise it's not too bad. So Yeah, that's good. Well, right. Wes, um I think we're probably at the end, huh? Let's go ahead and do Geeks of the Week. Okay, yeah, we got five minutes. So, um,
0: my geek of the week is the Russia Ukraine monitor map by, uh, the Center for Information Resources. Um, this actually came from that Wired article that I referenced, uh, talking about disinformation, um, and the way in which perhaps Russia has been misstepping, uh, when it comes to, uh, misinformation. Um, this is a map that is a crowdsourced effort by the Center for Information Resilience. Bellingcat and the conflicts intelligence team uh, to document and verify significant incidents during the conflict in Ukraine so that their goal is to provide reliable information uh, they're logging stuff in a central database and reminds me of some of the things that Clay Shirky who's the author of a great book that's now a little dated but called here comes everybody, you know, during the Haitian earthquake during different kinds of crises when uh, information technologies have been leveraged to try to, you know, identify where resources are needed or connect people kind of like that um, website we mentioned earlier in the show for, for refugees to try to find housing. Uh, But this is about significant events. So civilian casualties, Russian firing positions, munitions, military losses. Um, It's just absolutely fascinating. And I am a huge, huge fan of geo maps and so here it is. This is a geo map because you've got a live map of uh the Ukraine and then you've got these different um map uh pins around that are color coded and then you can go ahead and select those on the map or you can go over to the uh legend on the right side and then you can see these posts about date and time and a hyperlink and more information. And I definitely think overall um, not only this particular map uh, but the Wikipedia article right now for the uh, the war that's happening in the Ukraine, it's a great opportunity to talk to students about how do people decide what is credible or what is not. Uh, the talk page on those Wikipedia pages is fascinating in terms of what is being debated um, and then how it's being vetted and how the Wikipedia community is responding. So highly recommend that. And again, that website is um, uh, available from that Wired uh, magazine um, article that I referenced, but it's called the Russia-Ukraine Monitor Map. Yeah,
1: wonderful. Well, let me share a tool that I know we've talked about before, but I just I can't explain enough how this is not already in your teacher toolbox. It needs to be. It's, it's, it's the tool Canva, and Canva is an online uh, visual media uh, editing suite. It kind of started off more or less in the picture print uh, realm, but they've added so many features lately, including the ability to edit Admittedly rudimentary, but you can edit video clips now on, on Canva as well. And if you're a teacher um, with a verifiable uh, uh, email address, uh, teacher email address, you can simply sign up. Uh, and you'll get the pro version of it, which includes uh, 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 millions of pieces of, of art, a bunch of wonderful templates and also an assignment. Engine 2 to where you could use Canva as a way of exchanging digital assignments back and forth with your students. And what I love about Canva is that it's really easy to create professional looking stuff pretty quickly. Um, And also it's got a wonderful drag and drop interface that makes editing super simple um but uh if you're not already using Canva it's absolutely worth your time and energy to do so because i find it to be um probably the most professional video su- i'm sorry uh, uh editing suite i've used outside of the full blown adobe suite and in fact i prefer it for most of my day-to-day editing.
0: Awesome. And Peggy George. Hello Peggy. She's joining us live here in the show uh says she's participated in Neotech 2022 the past 3 days. And they featured Canva for Ed in several presentations. Um, My uh, good friend, Cindy Danner-Kuhn, who teaches uh, EdTech courses at the College of Education at Kansas State, has always loved Canva and considered that to be one of the tools, I think, that she really wants all her pre-service teachers to be introduced to. And honestly, it's one that I haven't played with a lot. So I appreciate, again, your, your ringing endorsement for it. So it's probably something I need to revisit and play with some more. Well, Dr. Knifer, we have done it again. Uh, we have uh, 30 seconds left until a 60-minute show. So where can people find you when you're not here on time on Wednesdays?
1: Sure. Best place to find me is on Twitter, tech savvy Teach, And yourself, sir?
0: I am at com, and you can uh, find various links to connect with me there. And WFryer is my Twitter. So, we want to thank you for joining us, and if you have not uh, subscribed, we want to encourage you to subscribe to us in your favorite catching app, wherever that is. Also, write a little review for us if you can. You can find both uh, small 32-kilobit MP3 audio versions and about 100-meg video versions if you want to download the video version or not just watch it on YouTube or Facebook, all on edtechsr.com, where you'll find our links, um, our show notes, the articles that we talk about, those that we don't, and... I need to still send the one out from last week, and I'll do that. Uh, we now have a Substack, and uh, currently it's just basically uh, sharing the, the same content, um, but in the link form, and you can get that by going to edtechsr.substack.com. So I want to thank everybody for their attendance. Encourage you to join us live. If you have an opportunity, reach out to us on Twitter. And until next time, stay savvy and stay safe. Hope to see you again soon on the EdTech Situation Room.
1: Good night.